Welcome everybody and um, thank you so so much for coming this evening here to the House of Wow. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Um, this is the very first edition of the Human Library and that is an idea that's not mine. Um, it came from two guys in Denmark that actually started it up 23 years ago um, as an NGO and a not-for-profit and the idea was that they would um, sort of offload some stereotypes really um, and sort of unjudge people. And I think we're all very guilty at some point in sort of judging a book by its cover. So I really like this idea of kind of, you know, thumbing the pages um, and, and kind of getting the gauge of a subject matter by kind of renting out a human um, for the evening. And that's exactly what I'm going to be doing <laughs> with these two ladies here. I'm not renting them out, by the way, um, on a permanent basis, but um, just for tonight's. Um, pleasure and proceedings um, they are all yours uh, to listen to for the next hour there will be a quick Q&A at the end of the evening so you're free to ask some questions if you've got anything burning away by the end of, um, of the conversation so I feel also in my job as a journalist um, that I kind of get the pleasure of sort of bookending conversations I've got a podcast series that's um, based on Ireland that's five years old and has had about 200 episodes um, and again, you know, I really love this idea of kind of diving into people's stories and kind of um, unveiling those for the, for the pleasure of others. So that's what we're going to be doing, hopefully, um, not just tonight, but through um, the course of many different talks that are going to be happening here at WOW. So do keep your eye on social media um, to see what else is going to be happening across the summer. Um, so tonight's talk is about um, sustainability in fashion. And I met these two wonderful women through the course of um, TEDx and also through the course of making some podcasts. Um, and they're both from quite different arenas in the fashion world. Neliana is um, from Venezuela originally and um, studied fashion in London, became a fashion designer um, and then basically observed some situations and some, and some trends um, through her time as a designer in London and basically set up a transparent company which is her own business and she works in innovation and technology um, right here on the island as well as commuting backwards and forwards from London quite a bit and this lovely lady here Tiffany Dark um, is the co-founder of a sustainable fashion boutique that's based at the Six Senses um, you might have been up there at some point um, they focus on sustainable fashion brands as well as renting um, and vintage clothing um, and Tiffany was also the fashion editor of InStyle magazine for the Sunday Times, is that right? No, Sunday Times Style. Sunday Times Style. I knew I would get that bit wrong. But um, <laughs> she's very um, kindly agreed to take time out of her holiday. Um, she's here for the summer to join us this evening. So thank you, first of all, both of you, for, you. for coming and um, having a conversation here at WOW. Um, let, let's start with, um, with you, if you don't mind, um, talking about, you know, like transparency, I think, is obviously perhaps the key to unravelling this story of sustainability. And I just wonder, you know, what did you experience perhaps when you first started out in the fashion world of London that made you kind of want to, you know, fly the flag for making transparency the key to your company? 
so yeah, I did fashion design to start with, and I'm a very creative person. And um, I found that materials are key to our the design that we want to bring to this world in 3D. Like when you imagine something, you draw it, and then you choose the material, and then it comes to life. That is a responsibility as a designer to choose that material and what happens with the material, both for the wearer, but also for the environment. And so I start asking questions about the impact, both environmental and social. And I started, yeah, I'm, I'm very geeky. <laughs> so I just started like researching more. And I graduated in 2009. And during that time, after the financial crisis, you know, you had to be very creative as a designer in London trying to find uh, your path and I found that I wanted to bring a way to give alternative materials a place in fashion that it was not conventional at that time and now we see so many more innovations in terms of textile technology that is how is the way forward so I, I was always like five years ahead of the game. Um, this dress I'm wearing today is actually uh, from my label that I had in 2012, and it was all about transparency. It just lasted two years, because at that time, customers were not really into that. But um, it really showed me that it was my impact wasn't going to be about making clothes. It was going to be about working with the industry and help redesign supply chains. Um, look at different materials and essentially how to create transparency so that you guys can know what's in your clothes and also how it was made and where and that, that, that information, information is actually true and so that the loyalty between the brand and the consumer uh, grows stronger. I mean you did a whole TED talk about this um, exact subject matter and you know, part of that was about um, the pilots that you ran with the UN, with the likes of Vivian Westwood, who's sadly no longer with us, um, and you know the ways that we can implement this accountability. So, how do you, you know, working with things like blockchain, how do you see that perhaps evolving? Um, yeah. So my journey into technology was almost like by accident. <laughs> I had friends in the space of. Uh, blockchain in 2014 and I was again curious and asking questions and they explained to me that you can not only use this for cryptocurrencies but you can actually implement it in a physical timeline like a supply chain so that for example you can follow the journey of an organic coffee from farm to your cup and actually know that coffee comes from there and so I was like alright we need that in fashion because we have exactly the same issues just it's more complex so um yeah, uh, in 2017, after some more research and collaboration and failures and tests, uh, we launched the world's first garment on blockchain, which meant that we tracked it from animal, from farm, to the end product. And we did, we did it as a collaboration with a Danish designer, Martin, Martin Jarlark, and innovation uh, agency of London College of Fashion, where I went in London. So. It was a way to create a new market within a space that it was really needing to innovate and bring new technology. So the UN project came 
in 2020. And it was a three-year project where the UN, um, under an umbrella of this other organization within the UN, um, they decided to pilot this technology to create new ways to bring solutions to the real world problems. And Vivian was, was one of the designers that piloted the Egyptian cotton pilot. Yeah. Mm. Do you, do you feel that you know the blockchain um, modality is, is probably going to be the answer to creating transparency in the long term? I'll be perfectly honest, I have no idea how blockchain <laughs> works or what it is. Or it's just, I know it's a magic word that people sprinkle around and um, it means that we can all trust it. So when Neliana says blockchain, I'm like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I completely love what you're doing. I mean, I, the, I, I worked in fashion for so many years, and I never once asked the question of where do clothes come from, and it never occurred to me that clothes come from soil. I never thought that clothes also travelled probably more continents than I've ever travelled before they even arrive at me. Like I might have a cotton, you know, t-shirt that's made in Turkey that is it was grown in Turkey that is then you know, woven in Indonesia and then it's gone and been cut in America and then come over to Europe and, and you know, whether it cost me like 40 or 50 or 80 euros or whatever it was, this, the idea that this supply chain existed behind the thing that was hanging on the hanger in the shop was never any questions. I never asked any of those questions. And I think it's only now, post-pandemic, when all of our supply chains got completely fucked and mm. globalization became a massive issue and we started to look at more sustainability issues surrounding products that supply chain in the fashion industry has become has come to the light yeah. um, so what do I think of a blockchain modality <laughs> I'm like go girl <laughs> if you can if you can track something and I think this is the big problem is that most fashion brands can't track where any of their stuff has come from because they're working with um, so many middle market people along the way. They might be buying the cotton from somewhere and then you know, buying, buying the actual pieces from somewhere and then printing them somewhere else or cutting them somewhere else. So I think you will know how complicated and difficult it is to track a single item all the way back, all the hands that have touched it to the very field that it was grown in. Um, do you do it for synthetics? Like, can you track it back to, can you track polyester back to an oil refinery? Yeah, I mean, you can track everything, but I always say 20% is technology and 80% is human processes. Mm -hmm. And actually aligning those processes and the willingness to share that information. There's a lot of competition and there's a lot of fear in between suppliers that if they disclose even yeah. an address of a factory and, or the brand, it's, it's just very complex and that's why it's opaque because it keeps some sort of secrecy but at the end of the day everybody knows who does what and where it's just like there is this secrecy that makes the technology that is there and ready very tricky to actually be implemented so do you have to like by hand almost as a human have to track the journey back and then you put the blockchain thing in how does it actually work it's a software it's like if it's, it's part of the digital transformations on how companies are now not doing anything on paper to avoid human error. Well, then you know with phones they allow us to input data, and these softwares can be connected to a blockchain that allows for this information to be tracked, to not be changed by anybody, so it cannot be tampered, and that way that information can be more trusted. Even if there was a human error. 
it will be there, but okay. it can be identified. Can I give you like a... Sorry, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I do like a red tooth. Just a, can I give you a really tricky one? Give me so, a tricky so, one. Okay, so if, say, my ring is made out of recycled gold, mm-hmm. and I could tell you the, a refinery where that recycled gold come, came from, how would you find all the multiple sources that went into that refinery that fed the, you know, of the, the feedstock of the gold that made the recycled gold? How would that work? So, for example, there could be a certification that says that was that is recycled gold, for example. That doesn't mean that that's trustworthy 100%, but it's something. If there's no certification, what blockchain allows is for that factory to say, we say it's recycled gold, and they can input this data, and it creates a timestamp, it creates, it creates a signature, a document, a smart contract that says that person. And so it's all about reputation. It's all about credibility and accountability. Because you said, or they told you, that's recycled gold. Same with diamonds. Then it allows for that chain of custody to stay there. And then if something goes wrong, and somebody wants to go back and check, they can see the timeline. And, and, and it's not about pointing out fingers, but it's about... And nobody wants to look bad, so you might as well give the information correctly so that in the future nobody goes back to you and say, oh, this, this is not right, you know? So, so it's not tricky because at the end of the day, it's about being transparent and mm. honest and open and accountable. Mm. I think that's, yeah. Obviously, the future, I mean, obviously we have labels on our food and we can track exactly where you know, the ingredients have come from and what's included and what obviously we don't want to be buying into. But I think, you know, in terms of fashion, when I go into a, a shop and there's a barcode or a QR code, you know, that is something I, I feel is probably going to be the future of, of buying clothes. I mean, how do you see that maybe actually coming to, to full fruition? Is that something that you're working on now? Or? Yeah, so there's new, also it's interesting because I compare the food industry a lot with fashion and the food industry is so much more regulated because if something goes wrong with when we eat something, you know, there's a, the risks are massive. Mm. But fashion is not very well regulated, it's just starting. So one of the new regulations that is coming here in the EU is called the EU um, Digital Product Passport. And what that means is that each product will have a passport, it's digital and it's inside of the product and we can tap into it so that the information comes up and we can actually, for example, know that it's not fake, that it's authentic, or we know that um, we can resell it and with that authentication certificate, you know, we can provide that to a third, um, set, uh, a third platform that resells it mm. um, and so that's happening a lot in the luxury uh, market and building up more so and or simply for circular economy which is what a lot of yeah talks are around like how can we resell recycle rent um, and then yeah essentially and, and that's being regulated as well isn't it so the new EU regulation is going to um, when it comes in in two years time mm-hmm. extended producer responsibility will fine anyone who you basically have to be responsible for your product after point of sale so if it ends up in landfill you get you will be fined or taxed mm-hmm. for a bad outcome correct so 
technology of the future. <laughs> <laughs> How important do you think that is, you know, to people, like, in your experience, um, in, in the work that you do, to kind of know exactly where that goes, and how, you know... I think it's increasingly important. I mean, number one, something has to be desirable to sell. Like, you can create the most sustainable product in the world, but if it's not desirable... It's a waste as well. (laughs) And it's a waste, exactly. Um, So people still have to see something and fall in love with it when it comes to fashion. And then then they'll ask the question. And actually, jewellery is an interesting one because I think... Do you remember that film, Blood Diamond, that... Leo DiCaprio did it. Like that actually was the beginning of questions being asked in the industry because it was the first time when people realised that these beautiful things that were meant to, you know, symbolise luxury and love and, you know, all the greatest human values could have these really filthy, awful, you know, kind of conflict driven backgrounds. And um, and actually, you know, Jory's was pretty, uh, you know, pretty bad. Mm. <laughs> so, um, the diamond industry had to um, really clean up its supply chain since then. Yes. And fashion has really, only in the last few years, hasn't it, started to realise that it has to kind of lift its skirts and show people. But mostly because fashion houses don't know where their stuff comes from. They're, like I said, they're buying it through multiple, you know, multiple third-party buyers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, there was the 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh earlier this year. I don't know if you remember that, but it was um, that was another big moment in supply chain transparency because there was a garment factory in Bangladesh that sadly collapsed and killed over a thousand people um, because of the terrible labour conditions that the workers were um, forced to work in. And when the reporters all arrived on the scene, they picked up all the garments and they were like H and M and M and S and Gap, and it was like this is where your clothes come from. Yeah. This is how they're made, and all of the companies that were there were like well we didn't know it was being made there because the supply chains are so broken yeah yeah so they might know but they might actually not know because they hire a supplier and the supplier has subcontractors and they send their productions to other factories and then they go back and they send it to the so it is that's why it's very complex and it's an issue that you know needs to be tackled and it requires a lot of... Um, and and regulation is going to force it to be tackled, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really liked your piece in the latest Substack. Tiffany has an amazing Substack um, article that she writes on a regular basis called It's Not Sustainable. And um, the piece that stood out was about why investigative journalism is really important in the fashion world. And talking about H&M... <laughs> kind of, you know, basically not really doing um, a good job of things. It was quite interesting to hear, you know, these kind of incentives that are given to you to recycle clothes or drop them off or, you know, to make you feel kind of less guilty about the fact that you're buying more stuff. But actually, when you tag things or trace things where they actually really end up, it's quite um, intriguing how the kind of wool is pulled over our eyes, yeah. if you excuse the pun, like, can yeah. you talk a bit more about your, your so, discoveries? Yeah. There, were, there were two investigative journalism pieces that came to light in the last 10 days. They did similar things. One was from a Swedish newspaper called Aftonblatt, um, and one was from an amazing foundation called the Changing Markets Foundation, which I really urge you to follow. They're doing all sorts of amazing stuff in sustainability. But the two, separately, the two investigations did the same thing. Was, do you, you, don't, you probably don't know, but in H&M there are these drop boxes where they'll say... 
bring back your old clothes and we will recycle them and you can earn points towards your new purchase. So basically assuaging your eco-anxiety in order to make you spend more money. So like you take back a t-shirt, any t-shirt they'll say, it doesn't have to be H&M and you get a couple of points and then you can buy a new H&M t-shirt. So, you know, it's encouraging a really bad practice, which is making you feel like you're doing the green thing, um, but also making you spend more as well. So anyway, what they did is they air-tagged, they dropped off 10 items in various H&Ms around Europe, and they put an air-tag on them so they could find out where they were going. And it was fascinating. So what H&M was promising was that if it was a good enough material, it would find a, if it was a good enough piece, it would find a second life. Only one of the 20 items that went off actually ended up in a second-hand shop in the same country in which it was dropped. A ton of them ended up in the awful second-hand markets in Africa, which are, you know, spilling into terrible landfill situations. One of them was burnt for fuel in South Africa. Two of them are still eight months later on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, you know, like the, the sort of outcomes for these pieces of, of these garments, which probably cost, you know, when you, they were first bought, like forty or fifty euros, they were not luxurious, but they've now travelled. They've tracked it and they've travelled one and a half times around the world. So the supply chain to the point of sale is one thing. But what happens afterwards, mm. fashion's waste problem is just is so off the scale in terms of what happens to our clothes after we get rid of them. And we've all done it, like filled up the bin bag, taken it to the textile recycling bank, put it in and thought, oh, good job, like mm. recycled, good, good old me. An actual fact that the system that exists to recycle those clothes is awful because basically it gets shipped to second-hand clothing markets in mostly West Africa, which in the second-hand clothing markets you're then wiping out any indigenous clothing mm -hmm. industry because you're selling Western clothes second-hand. Also, um, the Orr Foundation call it waste colonialism. It's like, we don't want it, but it's not good enough for us, but it's good enough for you. Um, and then what happens is most of that is polyester crap that doesn't degrade in landfill. So it just sits there for like thousands of years. People try and burn it and then they, it, it, the chestnut sellers burn it and then die from the toxic fumes or they get very ill from the toxic fumes. I mean, the whole scenario is really, really bad. But the piece you were referring to, Joan, thank you, was um, about how... And, you know, I hold my hand up with this. I was a fashion editor for many years, and I was part of the system that fueled desire to make us want to buy more, consume more, like, you know, kind of craft our identity by buying into the latest trend and fueled all the desire around fashion without ever asking the question, like, where does my clothes come from? Where do they go afterwards? And um, in much the same way that... Um, the blockchain technology and the transparency that you're putting in is, in, to my mind, the most creative part of the fashion industry right now. Mm. I think the most important part of the fashion industry right now in terms of journalism is not glossy Vogue shoots. It's actually investigation because what we're seeing now is greenwashing claims and a greater desire for more transparency <coughs> in how our clothes are made and what happens to them afterwards. And actually, most fashion journalism is still about creating desire and feeding the marketing machine, and very little of it is actually about investigation. And I know this because I worked at the Sunday Times for many, many years. Investigation is a really expensive thing to do. It takes a long-term commitment. You have to put a team of journalists on something for sometimes up to a year. 
And actually, at the end of it, you get this fantastic story, but it doesn't sell papers. Investigative journalism doesn't sell papers. Nigel Slater's cookbook sells papers. <laughs> Crosswords sell papers. So to do investigative journalism is a real leap of faith, um, and it's really important that it is supported. Definitely. So sign up to her Substack, basically. It's £1.50 <laughs> a week. Um, I think that's also why podcasting, you know, has obviously yeah. expanded dramatically. <coughs> Those kinds of um, funded investigative projects from The Guardian, from, you know, all the different big broadsheet papers are, you know, they're, they're superb and they're not really kind of policed, really. I think you can pretty much, you know, even Louis Theroux's done some amazing undercover work and then those kinds of stories are, are there because they need to be unveiled. I think there was an interesting topic that came up um, at Agora when I came to the Alma Festival last November and you had Lily Cole, um, model and activist in um, the boutique, talking about obviously the um, jewellery trade which you just highlighted about the, the blood diamonds but I think also what was very interesting to me was a very savvy teenager in the back row (laughs) was talking about you know it's all very well talking about these kind of cheap fashion items that are ending up in landfill and you know we can see them on satellite in the desert from you know from outer space which is terrifying but the fact of the matter is it's a very elitist thing in many ways to buy sustainable fashion because it's actually not affordable for people like her or for younger people or people in a lower bracket so I think it's an interesting quandary to be in because we all, you know, it's a very human desire to want to look good, to want to feel good, to want to, you know, particularly in a place like Ibiza, go out, you know, wearing the kind of things that are on trend, but not everybody can afford to kind of buy into that sustainable eco kind of... Well, I would define sustainable fashion as fashion that you wear for longer. So actually that's all we need to do is to just wear the clothes that we buy for longer. Obviously it would be great if they were made from natural fabrics that would biodegrade after they've reached the end of their natural life rather than synthetic fabrics, you know, which are made from the um, byproducts of the petrochemical industry. But actually the most sustainable thing you can do is buy something that you can wear for a very long time. Actually, Vivian Westwood was a big fan of yes. that. And actually it doesn't matter where that comes from. It can be from H&M or it can be from, you know, um, Hermes, that as long as it's well made enough to sustain you. And actually, so many people um, will say to me, oh, you know, I got this in Zara 10 years ago and I'm still wearing it. And that, that's, yeah. that's it. That's not like your dress from 2012. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's all still you need to it. do. <laughs> yeah, it's just to just get over this idea that people like me propagated for so long that newness is the only thing that you need. It's not about newness at all. Um, can I talk about Rule of Five? Please get your Rule of Five out. Why not? <laughs> so, I, so having been on this sustainability journey and tried to unpick the threads about what would make a sustain, something sustainable and gone into all of the lovely technology that's being developed and the biomaterials and the regenerative agriculture and thinking, oh, you know, the sustainable fashion industry is alive with all this amazing innovation and we're all going to be fine. There was a report that came out from a Berlin climate think tank at the end of last year. It was the Hotel Cool Institute. And they basically crunched all the climate data in the fashion industry. And all, everyone, as you know, has signed up to the 1.5 warming target that was agreed at, the, at Paris 2015. So that we all know that we have to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels 
in order for us not to have cataclysmic change. So everybody said, that's what I'm doing. But nobody's actually mapped out how they're going to do that. So the Hot or Cool Institute looked at everything that all the fashion industries were doing and were like, no way. There's nothing you are doing in any of this that's going to get you anywhere near that 1.5 because basically you are, the fashion industry is set to double consumption by 2030 because the biggest problem that we have is overproduction and waste. And so they crunched all of the data and they said, if we are to reach 1.5, then in Western countries, and it's different for different countries for reasons I can go into, but for most of Europe, the UK and America, that amounted to only buying five new things a year per person, which is quite, for someone like me, a shocking number. Because James' space says everything we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> only allowed to buy five new things a year. And, you know, that pretty much includes second-hand as well because second-hand just fuels the first-hand industry. So anyway, I thought I had to nail my colours to the mast and see if I could do it. So I'm doing this Rule of Five campaign this year. It's like, can I get through the year only buying five items? What have you bought um, already? How much have you... Uh... I bought two things, commissioned a third. Um, but one of the things that is quite interesting is that you can mend and alter in your wardrobe, and that is all completely allowed. And we're sitting on a great big... Each of us is sitting on a great big sort of, you know... Stockpile. stockpile of amazing fabrics and prints. And so one of the things I've been doing is taking my pieces to tailors and getting them altered or getting them changed... And actually, that's such a lovely creative process and actually makes you really think about personal style because you're dictating your style more than everybody else dictating your style to you. So there's lots of um, ruses around it and swapping parties are another one and that kind of thing. But sorry, to go back to your original question, Joe, which was about social equity, is how do, how do people who don't have much money afford to do this? And the answer is it's really hard. I'm a fashion editor, I've been a fashion editor for 30 years, I've got a great wardrobe, so I can do this rule of five thing. But if I'm like a 24-year-old person who's just graduated from uni and I'm trying to make my way in the world and I've basically got a wardrobe that's from Depop and now I'm trying to look like a professional and, you know, fund a business and walk into rooms with, you know, kind of VC people and make a good impression, I need a whole different wardrobe. So you can't rent it. No, they, well, they can rent it, exactly, yeah. So this is where we need more circular economies, yeah. we need more solutions, and actually, people like me doing Rule of Five, I actually should gift one of my five to somebody who needs it more, that there should be this barter system. Does the Rule of Five apply to underwear? No, I exclude Just checking. <laughs> it's just for safety reasons. I'm not sure how that would work. Underwear and hosiery. Um, I excluded. Okay. But um, there's actually, and Lily talked about this mm. in her talk, actually, there's very little solutions for underwear in the sustainability world. Yeah. That must be the thing that is ditched more regular, you know, on a regular basis, more than any other item. Seem- and it's got and stretch tights. in it. And tights. And Lyrex and Lycra are the worst things for recycling because you can't take them out of the fabric and they're petrochemical and... Yeah, so don't buy things with stretch, but that just means your knickers fall down all the time, so then you have a problem. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that came to the fore when you were saying that if everybody didn't buy a Christmas jumper for Christmas, then it would be the equivalent of taking something like, I don't know, eight billion cars off the road for a day, and I was like, ooh, yeah, might not buy the Christmas jumper this year. I don't think I've bought yeah. one for a while anyway. It's very important to have those comparisons, because our brains 
don't understand the amount of clothes that are out there. There's actually in Chile, there's a massive desert that is full of clothes, and even Google Maps has blurred. There's a good stuff like which says that there insane. are enough clothes in the world right now to clothe the next six generations of the human race. Mm. That's how overproduced we are. Yeah. So. How does that, you know, obviously you are working with a designer that's only just had a big launch today. Do you want to, you know, what, what kind of work are you doing in the current um, design world that's kind of relevant to the, you know, the accountability, the traceability and all the things that you stand for? I think lots of designers that were part of a system that it was all about making more and from spring, summer, autumn, winter collections became resort collections and certainly like they were making collections non-stop and designers that I admire like Alexander McQueen couldn't take it anymore and he killed himself so for me that was also like a wake-up call and it's nice to see designers that come from that same generation that are launching new brands are really trying to make the work something that will leave a good legacy um, and will start a new way of uh, designing fashion so yeah one of my clients is a designer called Phoebe Philo and she's launching in September and it's great to work with a brand that is new because they get to do everything from scratch and there you have more control and impact to what that's going to be like um, and change and be part of that narrative of, of changing I think style and fashion and design and we all want that people we are. We feel emotions. We want to feel connected to that feeling. But also, how can we? I uh, speak a lot about how can we vote with our wallets. So, like you said earlier, I come from Venezuela. My vote is meaningless. I cannot make any impact in my country as long as there is a dictatorship, basically. But I can vote for a lot with my wallet. I can choose which brands I can. I, I want to support. I can choose the services I want and I need transparency, I need information from those brands and those companies so that I know. It's like when you are voting for a candidate, you want to know who they are, what was their background, what's their plan, mm. you know, so it's the same for a brand, an, an airline or the coffee you drink every morning or the hotel you want to stay, um, even the country you want to live in. So like, we all do that type of research research and do the diligence when we choose because that becomes our lifestyle so I am very strong advocate for every time we pay for something we're voting <coughs> and, and, and that is our responsibility as citizens and I really um, speaking more about how we can we should move from this like oh we're consumers and we buy and they tell us what to buy and we buy it and that makes us passive consumers instead of active citizens, because we can see how these brands are benefiting from our wallets and the resources are around us in our world, in our communities. And so how can we, yeah, play a part of that and, 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 and enter that conversation and not just, you, you said the word greenwashing. Greenwashing um, comes from brainwashing. So brainwashing means you've been told so many times one thing that at the end of the day you believe it. Whether it's true or not, you believe it. So it's the same with this brainwashing narrative that has been happening uh, lately with brands that wants us to believe that they're doing great. But what you just described with that story from H&M, 
is true like and the bigger they are the more impact they have and the harder it is for them to to reverse engineer what they have done so yeah new brands are pioneering new ways are really exciting to support so if you get into those brands it doesn't have to be the most expensive brands but you know there's so many designers are so cool out there and they need our support otherwise they won't thrive we have just got to have a moment for the fashion people in the room because like Neliana is working with Phoebe Fido, which is the most exciting <laughs> fashion news in the, like anyone who was into fashion in the last kind of 20 years would have followed Phoebe Fido's progress she was designer at Chloe then she moved to when did she go up to Chloe? Celine, Celine. yeah mm-hmm. so when her she was at the tenure at Celine she designed clothes for women mm-hmm. and they were very interesting clothes they weren't sexy or they didn't follow any trends they were just beautifully made exquisite clothes that basically made the wearer feel like a woman of substance and she created this massive fan base of people who worshipped her like women who absolutely worshipped her and then she just left she disappeared and there was this massive gap in the market for women who wanted interesting clothes that spoke to them as women of substance and she's been away for years and years and years and then she announced she was coming back mm-hmm. and actually today you were allowed to sign up to Phoebe's like first collection which she's going to show in September so the fact that Neliana is working with her <laughs> is so exciting if you are in the slightest bit into fashion sorry okay I'm looking to stop <laughs> no 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 it's all good yeah, I was reading the comments today and people are like oh my god I need to start saving oh my god the mother is back it's like yeah. exciting and the, the gossip fashion. is and Neliana knows all of it so we have to get her really drunk afterwards and find out <laughs> what is actually going on but the gossip I is, can't say anything yeah <laughs> Um, poker face yeah um, is that what she's going to do she's going to kind of redo all the models and the understanding is that what's going to happen she's going to show her collection and then you will be able to if you've signed up to her website and anyone can sign up say I want look 23 in a size medium colour blue so she won't do any overproduction because she will know straight after her show once the orders window is closed exactly who wants what and that wholesale model, which has destroyed the industry, mm. where basically you have to keep producing volume and volume and volume, and then it runs out of newness and gets put into sale, and then resale and resale, and end, ends up eventually in the Atacama Desert. She's not going to play any of those games. She's going to do it direct to consumer, we think. Neliana knows. <laughs> I think it's super exciting that you know this is starting. You know, obviously, made to order is is really going to become the future of shopping I mean obviously online shopping is another way of doing that as well but I think like when I used to walk around Oxford Circus when I lived in London for all those years and when I moved to Ibiza and I was unpacking you know stuff out of my wardrobe that still had labels on from maybe a decade previous yeah. I really used to retail therapy myself to death when I worked in London and it was so easy to do I'd like fall out of you know the BBC radio studios and go straight onto Oxford Circus and on a Friday night I would just it's buy something exactly yeah. I would Even buy something crashed. new to wear that night and I did it like every week which mm. was kind of disgraceful looking back on it yeah. but I think like how you know when you're walking around that neck of the woods these days I mean I don't even recognise it I mean it's just like literally every storefront has changed but you do have brands like for example Patagonia doing incredible things which I feel is quite exciting but you know what other brands other than Phoebe Philo are you sort of putting on a pedestal in that in that way that are really conscious well, the, yeah, of this but there are lots of brands well there's, there's there's multiple brands we curate them in the Agora which is the, the boutique that we have up at Six Senses and it's been really interesting process delving into brand stories and seeing the different ways that they 
approach sustainability. Um, a couple that I could call out is there's a, there's a brand, an American brand called Another Tomorrow, which is run by a sort of ex-Wall Street girl who's come in and thought, can I build a luxury sustainable brand at scale? And her biggest problem has been supply chains, because in America, supply chains are particularly egregious. You have to kind of go multiple continents in order to find anything that is going to you know, work in terms of a quality fabric. And you know, if you want a soft wool, you have to buy it in Australia, ship it to India, have it spun there, ship it to Europe to have it made into a fabric, and ship it back to America to have it cotton made. Um, but so they're a really good brand. Um, generally, new brands that start from the bottom up, Pangaea, I mean, I'm sure you've all heard of Pangaea, it's an amazing materials innovation company. They're backing all sorts of amazing, um, you know, sort of um, uh, material science innovation um, startups. So there's a company called 12, which can sequester carbon from the atmosphere and turn it into sunglass lenses. They're buying a lot of um, regenerative cotton, so cotton that's farmed regeneratively, and then also transition cotton, so backing farms that are transitioning from industrial farming to regenerative farming, and they're you know, committing to them for that three years of transition so they can get to the regenerative status. Um, they put peppermint oil in their cotton items so that you don't have to wash them so much. Um, a perfect nomad. This is purchase number two of five, by the way, everyone. This is an Ibiza brand. I don't know if you know it, but... Um, she uses she very small production, um, and she uses a lot of hemp. So this is a silk hemp mix, and hemp, as we know, is a really good crop to grow because it grows without much water. It doesn't need any chemicals. It's very strong. You mix it with silk, and it's a lot more robust. Um, also, completely natural. Um, there, is, I mean, there are there are, there are so many. I'd I mean, call out anything that Gabriella Hurst, the designer, is doing. <coughs> and currently the creative director of Chloe. So at Gabriella Hurst, she built a luxury brand based on sustainable principles. She got to Chloe, where it's all about mass and all about volume, big super brand. She realized she couldn't do the same thing. So what she said was, okay, we've got to use, we've got to recycle more, recyclable materials. So for instance, you need, if, you, if you're gonna have a hit product, you need like a sneaker or a handbag or something. She made a hit sneaker product for Chloe called the Nama sneaker. And she's making the soles out of recycled flip-flops. So the soles are white, but they're flat with all these different colours because she collects the, by the way, four billion pairs of flip-flops that are thrown away every year and recycles them so that you're not creating new petrochemical substances but just using the ones that are already in the system. So recycling is a ma I mean, you know, we've got enough clothing on the earth to have to clothe the next six generations. There's enough product out there. We don't need to be making any more fabrics. And actually, can I just have like a diversion on the, on the vegan leather thing? Because this is really I was actually going to ask you that, because we've Sorry. got a friend who has a, a sustainable sneaker brand. And he's, you know, going to Italy to create, you know, the sneakers with apple leather and things like that. But, you know, he's still mass producing those. And does, you know, do you think that then offsets this offsetting carbon kind of greenwashing idea, <laughs> essentially, of like, you know, just because it's coming from a, a healthy source that that makes it okay? Okay, there's so many things wrong with that. So first of all, uh, vegan <laughs> leather. I'll let him know. You ready? <laughs> vegan leather. All vegan leathers, bar one, require plastic backing for performance. So even Stella McCartney, who produced her first vegan leather handbag last summer, a hundred of them, she uh, she knew, had to use plastic backing in order to get the performance right. There is one called Miram, a mushroom leather that's made by Natural Fibre Welding who are a West Coast biomaterials 
firm who are going to just knock it out the park with some of the stuff they're coming up with. They're the only ones who've managed to make a performative alternative leather uh, that doesn't require any extra materials um, in it. The other thing about leather is, and I'm not a vegan, so this is not. So if you're, this doesn't work with that group. But the meat industry is a leather is a byproduct of the meat industry, and we only use about 80% of the animal hides that are produced by that industry. So the leather source material is already there. If you then create an alternative to that you are using an awful lot of energy and water and resource and carbon and all that stuff to create an alternative to the animal hide. Granted, tanning of leather is a horrible process or can be a horrible process. It uses chromium which leaches leaches out into the environment. However, there are now closed loop systems which allow you to tan with vegetables um, or use less chemicals where the water and chemicals are kept in a closed loop within the factory. I think there's a real misunderstanding about vegan leather being good for the environment. It is absolutely not good for the environment. It uses lots of plastics. It's creating a raw material where there's already one that's there. Um, and it's very problematic in terms of um, you know, the, the cold plastics thing. But having said that, mirum is a wonder material. And if, you, and if you can get something that's made from mirum, that's where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And actually, the port... So, so this gives you a clue of how fast the innovation is happening. So Stella worked with Bolt Threads, who came up with mycelium leather seven years ago. And I don't know if you remember when it first came out, and I was like, this is the answer. And there was loads and loads of um, money poured into Bolt Threads. Stella put loads of money in, Caring put loads of money in, LVMH put loads of money in. And they've just failed their next round of funding, and I think they're going into bankruptcy because they didn't manage to develop a leather that doesn't, have that plastic backing for performance and Miram have managed to do it. I remember because I, I used to work at Stella McCartney when we were looking for a new mm. alternative but they, they also they started with spider um, a spider thread. Yes yeah, so that's different yeah. and that's really interesting Pangai yeah. used them too so Spiber is amazing it's, it's basically a silk protein that's made yeah. in a lab as a silk alternative so actually silk is if you're talking about the cruelty to animals, it's one of the worst things that you can do because the silkworms all die after they've made the cocoon. The cocoons get burned and the silkworms get burned alive. It's actually quite horrible silk farming. But spiber is an amazing biomaterial. So they've learned how to produce that in the lab without killing any animals. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What other greenwashing trends are we, you know, should we be aware of other than just creating alternative? You know, kinds of fabrics that are still not really doing what you would imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't want to knock all of that stuff down because it's a really important part of the industry and the innovation there is amazing and people are getting there. Like, bolt threads didn't make it, mm. poor bolt threads, but Miram have, and Miram are going to change the leather industry. And if we all stop eating so much meat mm. and stop ruining the planet with all these cows, then, you know, we're going to have Miram to replace the leather hides, which is going to be great. Um, so, you know, that the innovation that's going on in material science at the moment absolutely has to be supported. It's just, it's science that's happening fast and quickly, and not it's not perfect yet. Um, I mean, brood protein, that's another one, so that that's um, using brood protein to make um, all sorts of, you know, materials and fibres from packaging to clothing to building materials to, like, I mean, concrete alternatives, that's like a, a massive one that's needed so 
on the greenwashing thing, it's really easy to call people out and say, oh, you're greenwashing. But ultimately, we want people to try and do things better. And the fact that H&M are even offering this service of saying, we'll take back your clothes, we'll create a circular system, we'll close the loop. The idea that they are trying to put money into that, they're making mistakes along the way by outsourcing it to other companies that are then sending it off to landfill. So, you know, bad luck there, and they shouldn't have done that. But at least they tried in the first place. And I think it's really important with greenwashing that we don't scare people away from making ecological claims because they're scared of being called out because then they just won't spend the money there. They'll spend it on another supermodel marketing campaign. Yeah, that's true. And I, I always refer to when we are looking to buy, you know, a washing machine or a fridge. These days there's so much information in the moment that you're buying so that you can buy the most efficient one. This is what we're working towards so that in fashion you will have a very simple standardized system to know what you're buying and that that is regulated because it's not necessarily our job to to know and to figure out. I mean, I have spent so much time of my life researching just to buy one t-shirt. You know, I know nobody can do that all the time. So, like, we need to 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 have the systems we in need place the trust. that we can trust exactly. So, so that's what I envision for you know, at least for 2030 that we can have a universal label that we can all trust at least per continent. And yeah, working in the EU at the moment, but that's the vision that we find a universal language to know ABC. How good is it? Or not, and it's our choice. And again, like we choose a product, and that will be part of our footprint. I think, yeah, there's just so much to unpack within this entire <laughs> conversation. We've been pinged around all over the place, but I mean, what are the three main takeaways? Obviously, we've got the, the rule of five possibility, we've got the vintage idea, you know, we've got the accountability, the traceability, the transparency. You know, just to summarize, because we have been talking for an hour now before we go into the QA, yeah. like what. You know, what are the main takeaways from from the conversation that can inspire people to feel less guilty? I think a lot of people here, maybe raise your hand if you felt a little bit guilty recently, maybe, just going out on one of these mad, crazy sprees. I know that I have. <laughs> For me, it's ask yourself first, do I need this? Because marketing campaigns and ads, they know how to talk to us. And they know how to get us in that moment where, like, oh, I need to go shopping, I need to feel better for, I don't know, I had a bad day, or I had a fight with my partner, whatever, like, try to self-regulate yourself in a way that you can make, a, with discernment, shoes, if you really need that piece in your wardrobe, or you just need to actually go out for a walk and do a meditation and <laughs> chill out. Have a glass of wine, eat some wonderful food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Louis and Ibiza, you know how it is. We all are in this journey of, you know, self-discovery and, and healing. So I feel fashion, even though it helps us to feel better in many ways, mm -hmm. it also tries to fill this gap or this void that we're all trying to fill with other things. So in that moment, it's like, do I need this? Yes, no. And if you do, then, um, you know, what's, what's, how are you voting with your wallet? You know, what are you um, choosing? And then ask for questions. Um, even if you're in the shop and just take out your phone and look at the website or the 
of the brand. Some of them already have QR codes, so like it's easier to pull out this information. So get more curious, make it a journey, not just like buy, buy, buy for the sake of buying. Just try to make it fun, informative, educate, like educate yourself, your friends, your family, your community, and enjoy the process. It's not about no buying, it's about choosing well. And it's like, you want to go to a nice restaurant and eat nice food? Well, you, you do your research, I'm sure, on Google Maps or something. So it's the same with clothes. So just, I think yeah. if ever there was a place for a good swap shop party, it's got to be this island. Yeah. You're in a good, you're in good company to basically get yourself some really nice. Do a swap. We should do a swap here. That would be so. Fun. A swap here would be incredible. Yeah. Totally. I couldn't agree with you more, Neliana. And actually, I found out something recently which is really insidious. You know that thing about, um, uh, you know, um, they're all out to get us. Well, it turns out that Sigmund Freud's nephew was this guy who basically invented PR. And he um, figured out from his uncle's um, observations about the way that we um, uh, frame our self-identity, that it's all about our insecurities. And he realized in 1929 that he could sell things to people by playing on their uh, insecurities. And he launched a campaign selling cigarettes to women, telling women that cigarettes were symbols of empowerment. And... <laughs> That was the beginning of PR. And he actually wrote a book in 1929 called On Propaganda, which was basically about the beginnings of PR. But that was how consumer culture began. Mm -hmm. It was basically feeding our own insecurities about who we are as people mm -hmm. and telling us that we can assuage them by buying stuff. Mm -hmm. And that accumulating stuff and buying stuff makes us feel better about ourselves. So I think we have, you know, a hundred years later, ended up in this sorry state where we've got this broken capitalist system where we've all got too much stuff and we're all suffering from huge mental health crises. So if you can break out of the consumerist model, but also I don't want to do a downer on fashion. I absolutely love it. And fashion is so yeah. important in terms of self-identity and mm -hmm. you know empowerment and how you feel about yourself. We just don't need quite so much of it, I'd say. I think, you know, definitely sign up to this lady's Substack. It's not sustainable. And this lady has just done a TEDx Del Vila talk where I hosted her on stage. It's on YouTube and it would be great if you could go and find that and give it a little uh, watch as well. If anyone has any more questions, we are going to be lingering by the bar, having a drink. And you're also invited to join us all for dinner. Um, and thank you so, so much for coming. And thank you to Edwin for, for having us. Reset Rebel It's the Reset Rebel